Richard, Sicily, 2.0 where we cover all crime i am as always the great white snark scotty j seated across from me is the lovely and twisted monica hi uh, you probably hear stewie again because my i'm mom. not hearing stewie okay good because i can definitely hear him, so okay cool <laughs> okay we're re well we're re-recording crush part one because monica noticed that there was some audio problems with it so um we're gonna get right into it um to understand the standoff at waco we need to go back and look at the origins of the branch davidians much of what led to the standoff had happened in the group before two men had shaped the events of the branch davidians were william miller and cyrus teed now i'm listening to a book at work on a QAnon. And they talked about William Miller and part of it because they were talking about how like all these cults have like a doomsday new world utopia. stuff. And they talked about Miller and the, uh, the great disappointment. And then I listened to another book of Cyrus Teed and we're only going to, what we cover in this is only a tip of the iceberg. This man, I I'm going to order his book. We're, we're covering this man because Oh, the real story is much more crazy. Cyrus Teed was born in 1839. His family was poor, and by the time he was 11, he dropped out of school to help support the family financially. He took a job as an animal handler on the canals, often walking up to 30 miles a day for a monthly wage of $8. But in 1839, eight bucks was a lot of money. I'll do with like figure out how much to do. Right, she's she's gonna punch it up. She's gonna punch it up. Look, the stuff now that it's so easy. Right. I don't know how to do it, but there's people who can like okay adjust for inflation, and then math was never my strong suit. This was a long and tedious job, one in which Cyrus felt he could not do for for the rest of his life. When not working, he read the Bible and had followed the apocalyptic prophecies of William Miller. In 1859, Cyrus began to apprentice with his uncle, who was a surgeon in Utica, New York. Despite his lack of formal education, Cyrus wanted to be a doctor. Calling Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard. That same year, he married his 16-year-old second cousin, Fidelia. While she was pregnant with their first son, they moved to Bingham, Binghamton so he could... Binghamton. Yeah. So he could attend the Eclectic Medical College of New York. Hometown Fraud Sterling. Right. Oh, it is? Yep. That man was a visionary, man. Imagine if you will. A man who's fed up with his job 
it actually like um oh, for a monthly wage of eight dollars. Okay, I was like like three hundred and eleven dollars and twelve cents. Okay, per month. So it's eh. I make that no, it's not. I make yeah, that month, half a yeah. week. Yeah, first it was like a week. It would be good. Month now. No. I mean, even we out. Depends on your other expenses and blah, blah, Right, blah. but I mean, like yeah. I said, eight bucks back then was a lot of money. But it really wasn't even then for a month. Uh, right, not for a month, but I mean, look at what, you know, like what Charles Ingalls was making at the mill. Yeah. So, when, the Civil, <laughs> when the Civil War broke out, he signed up to fight with the Federal Army, but due to a severe case of sunstroke, his enlistment was cut short. He went back to school, and upon graduation, he joined his uncle's practice. While working with his uncle, he suddenly began studying alchemy and built a lab next to his house so he could practice the ancient art. In one night during October of 1869, Cyrus said he turned lead into gold, which is what every alchemist has been trying to do since the 1500s. While he basked in the achievement, he began to wonder if man could use alchemy to cheat death. While thinking through this problem, he said he was visited by a female angel that fit the description of the angel in Revelations chapter 12, verse 1. This angel told Cyrus he was to redeem the human race. But he needed to die first, because there's always a catch. You can't redeem the human race and then go get a Big Mac. First, I mean, like, and you, right, you have to die first, you know, it, it's a trade off. Huh. And from what I was, um, from what I was, I, I listened to the audio version of the book on Cyrus Teed, he was actually a cousin of Robert Smith who started Mormonism. That sounds about. So he's Legit. like, right. So he's like, well, my cousin have visions. I can have visions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My cousin started religion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you do with your life? Yeah, you're not the only visionary in the family. <laughs> right. <laughs> what angel did you see? Well, I saw this one. My angel's better. Later on, he would add that there was to be a violent clash and he would translate it translate into a more godlike form and he and his followers would live in a sin-free world with blackjack and hookers. Cyrus would be the lamb of redemption and be the ones and be the one who would open the seven seals to bring about the apocalypse. Cyrus was the new king Cyrus, the liberator of the Jews and took the name Koresh. Well, guess what? It was foretold in the Bible. If you knew where to look, Cyrus did. Yeah, man, it sounds a lot like my damn father. And I, I say this a lot whenever we come up, come across these religious guys that I, I've heard this all before, and it's just a it's just a repetitive cycle for different people out there. So Cyrus began a lecture tour. First telling people about his theory of immortality. On August 10th, 1884, the New York Times said Cyrus was soliciting money for those who followed him. 
which prompted the local attorneys to say they were going to file charges. So he skips New York for Chicago and continued the lecture tours to attract the attention from local authorities because no one could go to Chicago and lay low. By 1890, Cyrus was known officially as Koresh and with a few of his followers bought some land in Estrus, Florida. While there, he began publishing a newsletter called The Flaming Sword. His followers began to call themselves the Koreshians, and within a few years, his followers were in the few hundreds. By 1906, problems began to emerge. In October 1906, a visiting Koreshian was in Fort Myers, Florida, when he got into an argument with a local marshal. Cyrus was nearby and, according to differing reports, either tried to break it up or join in the fight. Either way, he was punched by a marshal and went straight down. His followers would say this is where he suffered a blow to the head that eventually led to his death. Cyrus died two years later, but his followers said this was all part of God's plan. Upon his death, Cyrus's followers placed his body in a zinc bathtub and awaited him to translate into his divine form. After five days with no results, but a lot of stinkiness, the health department yeah. said they needed to bury him, which they did in a seaside grave. He remained there until a hurricane blew his grave out to sea in 1921. Like, like I said, the actual book on Cyrus mm -hmm. Teed is much more crazier than what we covered here. Oh. This this is just the tip of the iceberg. This is the Reader Digest version of Cyrus's life. It would have to be, be another whole, like, how many parts just on this guy. Oh, I don't know. I'm hoping to order the book next week. Uh -huh. But, oh, this man. Once I, once I started listening to the story, I'm like, uh -huh. we have got to, d -d 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 no. We didn't do him justice. William Miller was a Baptist lay minister and farmer in upstate New York. William's deep study of the Bible led him to believe that Jesus will return with fire sometime in 1843 or 1844. It's amazing how it always is in like their lifetimes, though. Right. And, and you know, if I'm going to do this. It'll be like he's coming, but it's in like in 100 years. So. Well, and, and this is something that they were saying in, in the, the QAnon book I'm listening to, that these people, when they do their prophecies, they're always vague. And then when they don't happen, they're like, they, they bump it up. Well, yeah, because I would start by bumping it up anyway. I would be like, well, like what do you expect? It's not for 100 years from now anyway. Remember that hat Carson used to wear? Remember that hat Carson used to wear as the great Karnak? Yeah. Uh -huh. I would wear that going, okay, Jesus is going to come March 17th, 2359, 412 in the afternoon. Yeah. Right in the middle. Give me the money now to ensure your descendants go to heaven. Um, and he's going to show up at a, at a, at an Irish pub in downtown Philly, and he's going to order oxtail beef stew. I have spoken. With a Guinness. Right. He's going to have a Guinness because Jesus loves the Irish. He's going to be sitting there with St. Patrick. 
bong. I'm gonna have a little dong with me too. And you know, after every prediction, I'm gonna hit the dong. Yep. Reading the prophecies of Daniel, William began to spread his message through the U.S. and Canada. By the end of 1843, the apocalypse shockingly had not happened. So Miller set the new date as March 21st, 1844. When that day came and went with no Jesus, he switched it to October 22nd, 1844. When this came and went with the same thing, it became known as the Great Disappointment. See, I would have been like, okay, Jesus is going to come on April 12th, 1861. Yeah, at least make it, you know. Because that's the day that Fort Sumter was bombed by the Charleston. Well, you got something then, right? Right. You you have the Confederates bombing Fort Sumter. Hey, Jesus is coming. Yep. Some concluded that the calculations were correct, just the biblical interpretation was wrong. It, it, the interpretation is always wrong. Yeah. Christ did appear only in heaven. Well, wasn't he already there? <laughs> right. And he already been there for like a thousand years. Yeah, was he like in solitary and then he showed up like, hey, still here. Okay, I'm going back in. No, him and the apostles and you know Moses and all of them were playing hide and go seek. Yeah. <laughs> and he was really good because he hid up in a tree uh-huh. and spread his arms out to match the branches. Too soon. <laughs> what is too soon? <laughs> well, you, you comedian. Too soon. Right. Comedians usually say that when it's like an overly uh-huh. sensitive joke or one that they know is not going to hit good. You're probably good. Oh. The year 1844 was the year Jesus began to judge those who were worthy of heaven. Oh my God, this dog. Those who followed Miller became the Seventh-day Adventist, believing in a strict following of biblical text. In 1844, Ellen G. White became the new leader of the Seventh-day Adventist, claiming she was receiving vision from the Lord. These visions helped support and create the doctrine of the SDA, and she wrote many books that became valued study guides for the SDA before her death in 1922. Victor Haltef was born in Belgium in 1885 and by 1920 made his way to Los Angeles. When he wasn't selling washing machines door to door, he became drawn to the apocalyptic scenes in the book of Revelations. And there's an Ezekiel 1, 1 through 9, <clears throat> sorry, that mentions an angel marking the heads of 144,000 to be allowed into heaven. That's a very specific number. 144,000? Yeah, but that's... Not one hundred and forty. Not one hundred and forty-three thousand. Uh huh. Not one hundred and forty-five thousand. One forty-four. Yep. Victor believed that these would come from the SDA membership, but at this time the membership was around three hundred thousand. Uh oh, some people aren't going to heaven. No one could get into heaven without my special mark. Victor began to preach against transgressions, real and imagined. He saw within the SDA and was called before the elders. So he's in trouble too. He was ordered to stop, but he continued to preach. That sounds like me. Hey, Charlie's eating meat on Friday. Shut up. Charlie's eating meat. I, I don't know what their tenets are. 
I think we have one here. Yeah, it, 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 it's up. Uh, it was the schools, but I think we do have a an SDA church. No, I think it's a ladder as I think it's a Mormon church here in Bradley. I'll have to take a look. In 35, with the followers he had gathered from within the ranks of the SDA, Victor began to look for a place where he and his followers could live and prepare for the end times. Because that's what everyone does when they start a new religion. We need to prepare for the end times, unless you're L. Ron Hubbard. Then you're waiting for the spaceship to come. I got to get a book on him. He found the perfect place in Waco, Texas. He named it Mount Carmel, and eventually 120 followers would live there. The followers either worked on the property or worked jobs in town to help the growing community at Mount Carmel. Eventually, the property would extend to 375 acres. In 1937, some problems began to creep up. Victor, who was 52 at the time, married 17-year-old Florence Hermanson, who quickly became his personal assistant, taking down notes on his lectures. In 42, Victor changed the name of the church to the Davidian Seven-Day Adventist Association. By 1954, Victor's health began to fail. His condition had worsened to the point where you know, he really needed to be taken to a hospital. Because Doc Baker wasn't coming out there to Mount Carmel to save his ass. It appeared his health was rallying, but he died on February 5th. After his death, Florence went before the governing board and said Victor named her his chosen successor since the two did not have any children. I got a joke for that, but I'm not even going to say it. Victor had predicted the end times before his death, and that was going to happen on Wednesday, April 22nd, 1959. Lois was instructed to double recruiting efforts to get the required number of people to go to heaven. Well, as we have learned from other people who have predicted the apocalypse and hasn't happened, this day came and went. Now, because the apocalypse didn't happen, people began to leave the group. After this, Ben and Lois Roden believed they needed to step in and create the Branch Davidians. Now, this group, not these people, but this group, would be the ones to usher in the apocalypse. Lois began to lose faith. With Lois losing faith, people began to follow Ben. Lois was strapped for cash and began to sell off pieces of the property. And by mid-1965, Bill had managed to get a hold of the land the main compound sat on. Under Ben Roden's leadership, the Branch Davidians purchased property in Jerusalem along with the U.S. holding. The rodents had a son named George who was more of a problem than an asset, and they usually are. I mean, we both have sons. We love them. Don't get us wrong. We love them. Yeah. <laughs> but there, there are days where... Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> now, I got to hand it to Alex. I mean, he will... If I'm having problems, he will be there so I can lean on him and, and use him mm -hmm. to, to like, um, like I told you, when we went to 
to um, Hershey. Oh and yeah, we, and, and we took we went into the to do the the factory ride. Is James? Yeah, yeah is James is happy place. Oh yeah, Hershey mm -hmm. World. Well, there was so much. The air was so filled with chocolate. I was getting sick, and I'm allergic to chocolate. Which that would just mean I'd have to just you know end it all right there. But yeah. All right. Well, Alex stayed near me in case <laughs> I needed. Out. Alex needs. He stayed near me in case I needed someone. And as he put it, I was going to leave you alone with those two wolves. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, James. Sometimes like feeling bad about you know something like having some difficulty with like teach him something they'd be like no you're a good mom don't say it's like you know so it's like oh and then there's other times i'm like hey god what was thing? so yeah <laughs> right and i mean you know even walking a battlefield alex is right there next to me in case i need him so although next time i do go to gettysburg i'm gonna have to stop at that irish store there on right off the circle and see if they got a shillelagh Under Ben's leadership, the brain. Okay. The road is. Okay. I had to remember where I was. Sorry, folks. George would rather listen to his opinion, and if anyone disagreed with him, he would. Or physically. He would physically abuse them or mentally to make them to make his point. George also had delusions of grandeur, often believing he would become the new leader when his father died. In 1977, Ben's health began to fail, so George declared himself the leader. Me, George. Me, leader. Lewis believed that she should be the leader of the group. To achieve this, in 1977, Lois claimed she began to receive visions from the Lord. This caused a split in the followers as some left and some stayed. Ben supported his wife as the leader, but his death on October 22, 1977, caused a major problem. George, looking to seize the leadership role, demanded the council have a leadership vote, which was the first in the group's history. Lois won in a landslide. With George making threats and causing problems, Lois eventually got a restraining order, one that was in place. George left, often going to New York, but he remained in different parts of Texas. Lois continued, but she knew the Branch Davidians would need a strong leader if her health failed, one that could stand up to George if he tried again to become the leader. Lois prayed, and she believed her prayers were answered in 1981. All right. As, as you know, if you've listened to the other episodes, what happened? Well, we, we had to go back and read you. Watching any of the news. Right. 30 years. So no spoilers here, people. <laughs> right although you know the um waco aftermath was a good good series oh yeah mm -hmm. but um that's gonna wrap it up we had to redo this one because monica noticed our audio was bad yeah it was terrible i, I don't know what happened i've got bad ears so i can't hear anyway i mean i got the the I have my hearing aids out because the headphone, you know, are, are nice, but yeah, I suck. My when I was listening to it, I was listening, I'm like, oh, I had to turn it off. 
I'm like, yeah, this this won't do. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. I work in podcasting and yet I have bad hearing. It's possible. Well, well, it's what I said when I, I took the uh the TV courses at Governor State. They put me on audio one day. I'm like, oh, yeah, put the deaf guy on audio. Yeah, well, you have a face made for podcasting. Ah, I also had a face made for radio, too. So on Halloween, I just walk outside with just, yeah. Like, yeah, kill it, kill it. I'm thinking of some old Rodney Dangerfield jokes right now. Uh-huh. All right, folks, you know where to find us. To listen to the show, you know where to join us on Facebook. We're Killers Cults and Nutjobs 2.0. I'm Scotty J. Say goodnight, Monica. Good night, Monica.